Uh, we're in the Beatitudes. Um, the first Beatitude we looked at last week, blessing from, from God to us, is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the second is blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And you might be thinking, why would anyone want to mourn? Why would anyone feel comforted when they're grieving? Don't we try to alleviate this the pain from our lives? We do anything that we can to get rid of the mourning and the grieving and to establish happiness and joy back into our lives. I mean, people turn to food for comfort or entertainment or shopping or alcohol or sexual immorality or social media. A lot of people turn to sleep or work. And people turn to God as well. But we want our suffering to end. Why would we consider ourselves blessed if we're suffering or mourning? So what did Jesus mean when he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted? Well, let's look at what he didn't mean first. He didn't mean blessed are all who are depressed, discouraged, cheerless, pessimistic, you know, with a perpetual skull on their face. I'm a godly person, you know. He didn't mean blessed are those who think they are disappointments to God. Man, I am nothing. I'm just a worm and walk around with insecurity. He didn't mean blessed are all who suffer the painful consequences for their sinful choices. I'm going to sin and they'll suffer and that's how it goes. I guess I'll be blessed then. No, and he didn't mean even here, blessed are all who are grieving great loss or injustice or abuse or who are suffering because of deceit and lies or even illness, or even the loss of loved ones. That's not what he means here. Granted, the Lord is close to those who are grieving the loss of loved ones, for example, but that's not what he's talking about here in the Beatitudes. So what is he talking about? I mean, we wouldn't want to pursue these things. I I want to pursue persecution. No, these aren't things we pursue It describes who we are as believers in Christ. So what did Jesus mean when he said, blessed are those who mourn? He he means something very similar to the very first beatitude. First beatitude was an intellectual acknowledgement, an admission. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, those who are poor in spirit. I admit, God, that I am a sinner and I need forgiveness. I need to confess. It's an intellectual acknowledgement of that, which leads then to the second beatitude, and they lead to one another, these beatitudes. The second is not intellectual, it's an emotional response to our sinfulness. Blessed are those who can weep over their sin. It's a spirit of contrition. John Stott put it this way, it's one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it, blessed are the poor in spirit. It is another to grieve and mourn over it. Confession is one thing. Contrition or repentance is another. So blessed are those who are able to mourn over their sin. A spirit of contrition. It's interesting that when Jesus began teaching the public in the beginning of the Gospels, in the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't say, hey, the kingdom of heaven is here. I want to bless you. Be filled with peace 
and joy. And I've got good news of great joy. And hey, this is how you can be happy and, and experience a successful life. He didn't focus on those types of things because Jesus knew that restoring people back to God always begins with contrition, with repentance, with acknowledgement of our sin. We need to blow apart any form of self-righteousness or self-sufficiency or self-pride if we're ever to live the way God expects calling us to live in intimacy with him. And, And that's how it came about at Asbury, in Asbury, Kentucky, at Asbury University, just a month or two ago. This 17-day revival after a normal morning chapel service. A few people remained behind and came up front and prayed for each other, and they confessed their sins to one another and their brokenness. That was a theme of the speaker's message that morning, who, who thought he had bombed in his message. But it led to 17 days of people flooding from all over to Asbury campus to confess their sin. And it was described as a time of of weeping. There were puddles on on the concrete floor of the chapel, puddles of tears. There were those who, by the way, Matea went there, didn't you, Matea, and and experienced it firsthand, our daughter. Um, and, And there were people who were broken, and there was a sense of humility, a sense of unity and restoration uh, to one another. And and so that's what God intends for us. It begins with a spirit of repentance. And and it's modeled for us. Psalm 51, King David wrote, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. There's that word contrition. God, you will not despise this broken and contrite heart. This man who, who was... Described as a man after God's own heart, he was also a man who was broken and contrite. Psalm 32, he even writes, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy on me. My, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. It goes on to say that he was set free. David was set free and renewed. You know, one-third of the psalms that we read, that we use, are psalms of lament, psalms of brokenness, psalms of contrition. A modern-day psalm writer, songwriter, would be the contemporary Christian artist Keith Green, who the late Keith Green now, and he wrote this in one of his songs that's beloved by his listeners. He wrote, my eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold, and I know how I ought to be, alive to you and dead to me. But what can be done for an old heart like mine? Lord, soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew with the wine of your blood. The prodigal son illustrated this type of brokenness. Of course, when he recognized and acknowledged his own sin and need for restoration with it to the father in his household. In Luke 15, the son had rehearsed this and he had prepared himself to come back to his father and say this. The son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Blessed are those 
who mourn. God's blessing resides with those who are able to weep over the gravity of their own sin. Isaac of Nineveh in the 7th century was a bishop. He wrote, whoever can weep over himself for one hour is greater than the one who is able to teach the whole world. Whoever recognizes the depth of their own frailty is greater than the one who sees visions of angels. So my question to us this morning is, as believers in Christ, why have we stopped weeping over our sin? Is it perhaps because we've grown accustomed to our sin? It's become normal in a culture that promotes it so rampantly. It's become acceptable. You know, I'm not that bad of a person, especially compared to those people out there and those people over there. And I remember first watching a video when videos were, were you know, music videos were a thing back when I was a young youth pastor in Salina. I went to Kansas Wesleyan Chapel, Sam's Chapel, and my youth group were there with many other youth groups, and there was a representative for a Christian music company there, and he was showing all these videos of, of the latest music, and I remember watching a song called Secret Ambition by Michael W. Smith, and this video portrayed the life of Christ, you know, as he ministered to people and cared for the broken and lost but then how the video concluded with him going to the cross and hanging on the cross and, you know, and being scorned. And I remember watching that and living color. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, that's what my sin did to Jesus? And I, I began weeping in the front pew of Sam's chapel. And I was sobbing when I was wa watching this depicted on the screen. My heart was tender. And I got thinking this week, why, do, why have I stopped weeping like that in my spiritual maturity? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Which leads to the second component of this. Blessed are those who mourn because they will have compassion. Mourn for the sins of the world. And Jesus being sinless didn't have to mourn for his own sin because, of course, he was sinless. But yet we're told that in Isaiah that he, he was a man of sorrows and he, he was acquainted with grief. He was a savior who wept, who grieved, who mourned. Why, though? Well, because he mourned for others. He had compassion for others. Luke 19, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it because he knew how lost and misdirected they were. Jesus wept at his friend's tomb, the tomb of Lazarus. He knew that Lazarus was going to rise again because he was there to do this miracle. He, he knew that. Why did he weep? Was it because he, he, he was grieving for all the loved ones who didn't have hope or, or because he, he saw what sin did resulting in death and resulted in in discouragement and hopelessness. I'm not quite sure why he wept there, but Jesus wept because he loved his friend and he loved his friend's family members. And then we read David, Psalm 119, streams of tears flow from my eyes. Why? For God, your sin is not obeyed. Your sin is not obeyed by your people. David wept for the sin of the world, or his, his people. Ezra, the prophet Ezra, when he was praying and confessing, 
weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God. A large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him, and they too wept bitterly. Why did they weep? We've been unfaithful to our God, it goes on to say. We weep for the sin of the people, sin of the world. Mourning for others, sin doesn't imply that we stand in judgment over them, saying, can you believe what those lost people are like? Can you believe how disgusting they are? How they're taking our, our, our country down the tubes, down the toilet? You know, they're immoral. They display these things. They endorse and celebrate these things. I'm going to mourn for those lost people with a sense of anger and a, a sense of judgment and criticism. Kent Crockett told the story about a man and his wife who pulled into a service station back in the day when, when they had attendants come out and wash their windows. How many of those good old days, right? And they even pumped your gas for you and checked your oil. Well, uh, this attendant came out and, and the man said, hey, can you wash the windows? The windshield's dirty. And so, of course, the attendant did so, squeegeed it off. And after he was done, the guy said, hey, my windshield is still dirty. Do it again. Yes, sir, the attendant answered, and he washed the windshield a second time. He looked more closely for bugs and smudges that he might have missed. And when he was finished, the man in the car became very angry. It's still dirty, he yelled. Don't you know how to wash a windshield? Do it again. And so the attendant did it a third time, and he's taking his time, making sure it was as clean as can be. And when he was done, the guy responded, the window is still filthy. Who is your manager? I'm going to go talk to your manager, and I'm going to let him know how inept you are. You do not belong working here. And when he was opening the door, his wife next to him reached over, grabbed his glasses, wiped them off, put them back on his face, and he looked at the windshield, and he slumped in his seat at a perfectly clean windshield. Critical and judgmental people view others Critically, because they have dirt of sin in their hearts, their sinful hearts. Their sinful pride causes them to see everything that's unclean in others from a critical perspective. This was the prodigal son's older brother. When the son humbled himself and came back and confessed his sin, the older brother did not want anything to do with it. He had remained faithful. He was the righteous one. How dare he come back? How dare my father throw him a celebration like this. When I was the one who, who was pleasing to my father and who deserves this. and We mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourning means that we mourn those who are lost because we have the compassion of Jesus in us. Jesus created these people. He died for these people. And yet we criticize these people. There's a disconnect there, is there not? The very people that Christ died for, uh, we turn away. We mourn as we should mourn for our teenage child who made a foolish decision and got kicked off the team. And then they can't play all season long. And so they grieve and they cry themselves to sleep. We, we mourn for others as we should mourn as we mourn for our, our friends, like a friend of mine who 
wasn't able to march in graduation with the rest of his class because he made a foolish decision at the end of the year. I think he got caught cheating or something. And so it broke his heart and it broke his parents' heart because they mourned for the child that they loved. Or, or the teenager who confesses that they are pregnant. Or, you know, we would never disown our children for making foolish decisions like that. How dare they do that? They no longer belong to the family. You know, we weep with them. We hurt with them, even despite their foolish choices. Bob Pierce said, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. Help us, Lord, to see with your eyes people who are lost, people who oppose us, people who uh, despise you even, Lord. Help us to see them as you see them, Lord. And sometimes mourning for others means repenting on behalf of even the world. You know, there's a controversy in church today. I mean, it's, people are yakking about this, you know, because there are some churches and some people saying, we need to lament for the sin of slavery. Our country was founded on slavery, and so we can't do that. I, I wasn't a part of slavery. How dare they accuse me of this? Or racism. Or we need to lament, they say, for things like abortion or greed or, or human trafficking. I have nothing to do with that. Quit. Keep that political junk out of the church. And I can see both sides of that argument. But listen, repentance and change begins with who? Begins with us, the house of God, right? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways first. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin. And then what? I will heal their land. If we expect our country to change and be healed, it begins here in the house of God. And that's why the Psalms of Lament, one third of them are in God's word. They're not only for us to read in our personal quiet time, when they were originally given to the people of God, they were done corporately. They were grieving over the sin of Israel. They were confessing the sin of Israel as they recited and prayed these prayers corporately, these psalms of lament. So when we mourn, we ought to display the compassion of Christ as we mourn for others. And then finally, when we do mourn for others, the good news is we will be comforted will be connected back to God. In verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The word comfort is associated with the same word used for Holy Spirit, paracletus. I mean, the Holy Spirit means to come beside you, like arm in arm, walk with you through your struggle. If we turn to God in our sorrow, the Holy Spirit will comfort us. He will grant us his assurance of his presence, his strength, and his promise of eternal acceptance. First Peter, we're told, and Peter said, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And he does so with his spirit. He will comfort us. In the story of the prodigal son, the father would illustrate this, person who extends comfort. Luke 15, but while he, the son, was still a long way off in the distance, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. 
and he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. Back in those days, elders would not run. It would have been a sign of disrespect to lift your robe and run like this. But he did that. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father, he hardly heard that when he said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Let, let's have a feast and celebrate. This is God's response to us. He comforts those who confess and mourn their own sin. Those who mourn the sin of the world, he comes. He heeds our prayers. He comes as our unconditionally loving father. Henri Nouwen writes this. The voice of despair says, man, I sin over and over again. After endless promises to myself and others to do better next time, I find myself back again in the same old dark places. Forget about trying to change. I've tried for years. It didn't work, and it never will work. It's better that I get out of people's way, be forgotten, be gone. But Jesus came to open our ears to another voice that says, hey, I'm your God. I have molded you with my hands, and I love what I have made. I love you with a love that has no limits, because I love you as I'm loved by my Father. Do not run away from me. Come back to me, not once, not twice, but always, again and again. You are my child. I am your God, the God of mercy and compassion, the God of pardon and love, the God of tenderness and care. Please do not say that I have given up on you, that I cannot stand you anymore, that there's no way back. It is not true. I so much want you to be with me. I so much want you to be close to me. I know all of your thoughts. I hear all of your words. I see all of your actions. And I love you because you're beautiful, made in my own image, an expression of my most intimate love. So do not judge yourself. Do not condemn yourself. Do not reject yourself. Let my love touch the deepest, most hidden corners of your heart and reveal to you your own beauty, a beauty that you have lost sight of but that will become visible to you once again in light of my mercy. Come, come, let me wipe your tears. Let my mouth come close to your ear and say to you, I love you, I love you, I love you. I'm going to invite Joss Allen to come up and share his testimony, um, three or four minute testimony. Uh, every week we want to we want to plug in a testimony to one of the Beatitudes. And so I've asked Josh, Josh this, this uh, day if he would do that. He was supposed to be here last week, but he, he came down with, a, with sickness. But this week, his testimony applies to both first two Beatitudes, so it's perfect. Well, good morning. Good morning. I came down with sickness, maybe stage fright. It's a bad cold. I'm not a scripted speaker, so if partway through this, you find that I lose contact with you, just bow your head in prayer, and we'll remove the awkwardness for both of us. We often hear the term 
I came to Christ. But that's not necessarily how I would describe my testimony. Romans 3.11 says, No one understands, no one seeks God. Looking back, it is very clear to me that it was God pursuing me, not the other way around. Likewise, I didn't come to Christ. Christ met me where I was at. And this is my testimony of how a prideful and lost man came to know God. I was raised in the church. I have my mother to thank for that. So for those mothers here, don't give up hope. I was active into my teens and briefly as an adult. I can't say that I understood God's word or had a relationship with him even, but I did try to walk with him, how I was instructed. Little by little, though, life simply eroded away at God's principles in a once young man full of integrity, honesty, compassion, and humility was reduced to a prideful, somewhat cold, and broken man. Some of that was enabled by seeing the tragedies of a broken world firsthand for 13 years in the fire rescue service. Some of it was simply my own blindness to sin. Spiritually blind men make poor decisions, and I was to be no exception to that. In 2018, it's not any easier the second time. I divorced my wife of 18 years. It didn't take long for that decision to cost me my relationship with my beautiful twin daughters. They were 17 at the time. It was a terrible age. If there's any good time for a divorce. It was devastating. And had it not been for God, it would have destroyed me. But not first without him bringing my life into focus. I don't attribute God for the losses that I'm about to summarize, but I do see that he redeemed those losses to pursue and restore me. Also in 2018, my little brother took his life. The day after, I lost my paternal grandmother. Not long after that, I lost my maternal grandmother. We could go on, but that was just the beginning. The cherished relationship of my daughters and my failure to father, my stepdaughters, it was probably the most crushing aspect. March 18, 2019, I remarried to Alicia, to which I will be internally grateful for the Lord. We relocated from Preston, Idaho, to rehome Santa Track of Land that my mother and I lived on many years ago. It was a fresh start, so to speak, on familiar ground. Dad joke. I had no idea just how fresh that would be. The short version is, we're still building four years later. Thanks, COVID. And just like that, as my life fell apart, God began to come into focus. My blindness to God, how my pride of independence had corrupted my purpose. I was beginning to see what was happening around me as the consequences of sin rather than simply unfair tragedies. For a man who was once so capable, 
I was so much in need of somebody greater than myself. I needed a miracle worker. I needed principles free of my own biases and blind spots. I very much needed God. That much had become pretty clear. Now for the better part. I accepted my Savior Jesus Christ in January of 2020. I expected God's recourse for what I had done. I had expected his scorn. I still remember that day that I had hit my knees before him. And that's not what happened. God's response to me was, as it was written in the parable of the prodigal son, I was embraced, I was forgiven, and I was welcomed into my father's house, y'all. Amen. I could go into detail for days about the suffering, pride, and the air in my former self. It's not really about me, though. It's about God's redeeming grace, mercy, and amazing power and love. Besides that, Pastor John did plenty fine delivering the sermon this morning. We don't need a second one. I chose Christ, but I got to the cross by God and delivered from my sins by the same. The same is true with the Beatitudes. We cannot bring upon blessings described in the Beatitudes by merely changing of our mind. That is repentance. No, that's not enough. It's the transformation of Christ and the very work of our Almighty God that brings upon those blessings. Matthew 3, it's been stated, it's worth stating again, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I was independent in spirit. The Lord blessed me to be incapable in order to see my need for him. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I've mourned, I've lost, we all have. That's not what I mourn the most. No, my grief, and I am not condemned for my sin. Praise be to God for that and our Savior Jesus Christ. But I mourn my sin, and for that I am a blessed, blessed man. I would close with this. After coming to Christ was really the beginning. Um, A key and instrumental part of my walk has been my discipleship with Pastor John discipleship with any there's many here to disciple and I would I would encourage any of you who find relation to my story and are still looking around disciple 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 it is what we are called to do and if you need help Tuesday night there is a ministry I'm sometimes called head servant it's called iron works at 6:30 we meet godly men and you can receive your counsel there And with that, I thank you for your time. Well, thank you, Josh, for demonstrating, modeling what it looks like to be poor in spirit and and to be mournful over your sin that you may be comforted, renewed, and restored. Thank you. That's where it begins. Uh, So, Lord, as we uh, conclude this service with this last song of worship to you, I pray, Lord, that you uh, continue by your Spirit to talk to our hearts, speak uh, and shape us, Lord, as we surrender our lives to you, even during this last song. And uh, we commit it to you in Christ's name. And I I might add this, that as we sing this last song together, uh, right at the end of the service, as the music uh, plays from the psalm booth there, uh, there will be those, some of us up, up front who would pray with you.
if you want to confess something or if you need prayer for something, there's a few prayer warriors, staff members. So just come and sit in the front bench here if someone else is praying, and uh, we'll, we'll remain as long as we need, need to to pray together.